Welcome to the Arise Podcast, conversations on faith, race, healing, and justice. And I want to welcome you to this panel conversation I'm about to have, uh, just stunning women doing wonderful work in this community and in the areas of justice and government. Listen in. I'll call on you first. (laughs) Oh no, maybe she's paused. Kaylee, you go for it first. All right. I am Kaylee Jensen. I am a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Washington. Grew up in Washington. Um, I am obviously, I'm a white American, but I am German, Native American, and French Canadian. And, and yeah, coming to you on the land of the Suquamish as we enter today. My name is Jessica Gidry. I'm the equity program manager at the Kitsap Public Health District. I also, like Kaylee, um, joined this meeting from the land of the Suquamish. I actually live um, in what was, which is still the the Port Madison Reservation, so closer to Indianola. Um, And I, I guess ethnically, I'm um, Asian, English, Scotch, Irish, and maybe some other British Isles there. But uh, um, I actually grew up in Bangkok, Thailand, and I've been in the U.S. though for a long time and I was born in the States. Next, um, Maria Fergus. I'm the Community Engagement Specialist at uh, Kitsap Public Health District. I've been in this role for a um, little bit over a month. And one of the reasons why I applied for this job is because I, uh, I know that last year the Kitsap Public Health District declared racism a public health crisis. Um, and I wanted to be part of what they were doing. I, my pronouns are her and she. I was born in Mexico, but I grew up in California. English is my second language. And I've been in Washington state for about seven years and working with our communities, um, our Spanish speaking communities as a volunteer for different organizations since the end of 2015. Akuya, you're up. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I stepped away because you know what I was doing, but um, <laughs> uh, just bring kind of bring me up to speed. We're just doing our introductions. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Uh, any question to that introduction? Just no? who you are, where you're located, um, what you're up to, and um, yeah, and then we'll jump in. Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. Good afternoon now. Um, my name is Akuye Karen Vargas, and um, I am on Bainbridge Island, um, working with our kids across Kitsap County. I am um, one of uh, the co-founders um uh, for latch uh living life leadership and kids at black student union um we have been working over 30 plus years with our school districts um with our multicultural advisory council here on bainbridge island working on equity issues uh really since i um moved here from the east coast so um what we're working on now with Kitsap E-Race Coalition is to um, to have our, our county have a commission on truth and reconciliation that would uh, actually deal with some of the issues 
that we see manifesting here in our county um, with our BIPOC communities and with our students of color uh, within the school districts and in the community. Um, and, and hoping that we, we would be able to um, move our communities forward in a healthier way to be able to address some of the, the issues that have been, um, you know, um, showing up, whether it's in our churches or whether it's in our, our communities or on our jobs or, or in our school districts, even in our health districts, you know, how do we move forward when there has been um, these type of, of issues that continue to manifest, you know, and I think that when we can move forward doing intervention and prevention um, to address these issues, it would help us to reconcile them more in, in a healthy way. Um, and so um, that's kind of the work that we've been working on. And so. Thanks. Um, well, welcome everybody. I, I know we kind of all connected and collaborated around um, what is happening in Kitsap County. And perhaps if you're listening, you're not in Kitsap County, but you are in a county or a, a town or a section of a town, even a larger town. We we all have these like there's like the 30,000 foot view of like the larger area where we're at. And we have these smaller cultural microcosms, I think, that happen in the areas where we actually physically root our bodies in housing and um, business and life and school and our, raise our children. And so we're coming to you from one location. Um, it's not it's not going to be the same as every location, but hopefully what we talk about can be something that we can we can learn from you if you reach out. And we hope you can learn just from us as we have a conversation. But <clears throat> Kaylee and I, like, we've been really close since the pandemic. She helped me survive the pandemic. She had her office next to mine and <laughs> we would yell at each other down the hall or um, check in, especially when all of our clients were online. And we had started these groups, one of the first groups we ever started, um, I think it was like the second or third group, right after the murder of George, George Floyd, to engage white people that identify as white or in a white body, um, and what that means to their racial identity. And so Kaylee and I started these groups, and we jumped in because I said, hey, Kaylee, do you want to do this? And she's like, yeah, sure. And we jumped in, we're like, whoa, we don't know if we know what we're doing. And then pretty soon we're like, actually, I think we don't know what we're doing, but we do know what we're doing in some ways. So offering good care, listening, um, reflecting stories, being witness to stories, engaging uh, the traumas that have been that turn into weapons against bodies of color. So those are some of the ways Kaylee and I have talked about things. And, you know, we both Kaylee and I both have students in the local school system and have had kids that are. Uh, part of marginalized communities or adjacent to marginalized communities. And it's, we've also noticed the mental health of our students and our families and, you know, become more and more passionate about it because obviously, well, it may not be obvious, but it's something we deal with in our everyday real life. And, and we care deeply for, I think I can say that on behalf of both of us, but Kaylee, you can speak for yourself, obviously, but that's how I come to the conversation as a, a Mexican woman in the town of Paulsboro, Washington, on Suquamish land, married to an immigrant, 
and um, we speak Spanish and English at home. And so just, you know, just curious to hear, you know, how that intersects with your different areas of work and, and your passions here in Kitsap County. Well, I guess I can go first just because Danielle was just talking a lot about me. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, Danielle did invite me into starting groups and I went with her with fear and trembling, um, had done some work on my own around my own racism for a while. My graduate program this, at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology really um, helped me to begin that work at a deeper level. And so then I did some work on my own, but had a real awareness when I started groups around racism that I definitely have racism still a part of my world as I grew up in a very white uh, community in Spokane. And um, as we began those groups, we did predominantly reach out to other white people or people in white passing bodies and um, have found some like goodness in diving deeper into people's stories around racism. And that's kind of where we started Um wondering with people around like when did you notice your own racial identity when when did you become aware of racism um kind of going all the way back to the beginning to help people make connections to like what is still going on inside their bodies when they try to have these hard conversations with people in the community um so i have learned a lot i still have a lot to learn um and along with what Danielle said, I also am a mental health therapist and work with a lot of teenagers in our community here in Kitsap County from different school districts. Plus, like she said, I have some teenage children. All of my children are white um, and and have diverse friend groups. But I have become increasingly, well, I've always been concerned about the issues of racism in our community. I, I remember as a young little girl calling it out in my own parents, and that didn't always go well. Um, but then it was very under the surface as a white person. Uh, you didn't see it as overtly as it has become now in 2020, since the election of Donald Trump, the like overt blatant racism has uh, been shocking and yet it's always been there. So, um, but as I work with my own children and then work with students in my practice, I'm just, I am deeply concerned about the mental health of our kids. I think it's hard enough as an adult to go through these past few years, but I am concerned about our teens and what they are facing, um, of all races, I, I think even my white daughter is very disturbed by the racial slurs that she constantly hears in the hallway and doesn't really know how to even go about addressing it or feel safe enough to even say anything. Um, so that's part of why I'm here today and um, had the privilege of going to a meeting uh, last weekend with Kitsap Race. And so, yeah, I, I just, I hope for continued leadership amongst adults to like, help our students and help our communities, even our adults in our communities, especially I have a passion for the white people in our community, help them be able to take steps forwards to be able to sit in these conversations and, and be productive and not as harmful. So that's how I enter this work. So I entered this work um, because I 
grew up in California and it was very diverse. Um, and when I moved up here to Washington, uh, there just wasn't as much diversity, especially in the Polsko area. And my daughter, um, who was a sophomore at the time, was invited to join the North Kitsap Equity Council. And so I started participating in that and started hearing stories. And I started working with the parents and children that are Spanish speaking and well, I kept hearing more stories and uh, realized that I needed to be a little bit more proactive. And so I, I joined um, Stand Up for Racial Justice, Surge, and I attended some of their meetings, got some training, realized that I have a lot of internalized racism and racist behaviors myself and white supremacy ideology that uh, I hadn't been aware of. Um, that was part of my thinking. And so um, over time, I've continued to stay involved. At the beginning of this year, I heard about the student direct equity campaign under a race and became a adult um, volunteer to support the, the students that were in the campaign and have been doing that since then. Uh, also participated in the Race Forward uh, Healing Together meeting that we had this last um, two weekends ago with, uh, with the race and try and stay as active as I can in the community to to hear um, hear the stories so I, I know what's going on and just stay updated and what's going on in my community. I feel really awkward speaking before Akuye because she's such a champion of equity in the community. <laughs> Akuye, did you want to go before me? Go ahead, Jessica. It's okay. Um, so for 13 years, 13 and a half years, uh, the, oh, you know, the health district. Oh, you, I, I was, were very, you were very light. Can, can oh. you okay. Is this better? Yeah, sorry about that. Um, so how I got started in this work. So for 13 and a half years at the, you know, at the health district, I was their public health emergency preparedness and response program manager. And to be honest, I didn't really address equity head on. Um, in the emergency management field, uh, we, instead of using the term, you know, equity, injustice, we use terms like access and functional needs, which to me doesn't really get to the core of the issue, but that was kind of the verbiage. But first it was vulnerable population, then at risk and things like that. But it wasn't until you know the pandemic um, that my role was able to switch a little. Um, I supervised initially our COVID vaccine equity liaison. And that was the first time at the health district that we had somebody with the word equity in their title. And she was specifically hired, her name was um, Holly Bolstad. Um, but this is the first time we hired someone to specifically look at differences and, and how we can address those differences and outcomes and access. And, and so it was really exciting to have Holly on board. And as Holly was doing outreach with the community um, and she built this vaccine equity collaborative, she started hearing from folks, you know, you know, this is great that the health district, you know, wants to address equity and vaccine, but what are you going to do about racism? And before the pandemic, well, um, you know, we, we've talked about it and in public health circles, racism as a public health issue was kind of was circulating, right? But I think it wasn't until the pandemic when we saw the differences in um, who was getting hospitalized, you know, with COVID, who was getting sick because of COVID, and who um, didn't get vaccinated because of access issues, distress of government, and you know, rightful distress of government. Um, 
where all this came about. So when Holly heard this feedback and heard, you know, are, you know, is is public health going to claim um, racism as a public health crisis? You know, she came to me and some other folks and asked about this. And we said, you know, yes, let's talk about this as an agency. And our leadership was very supportive and wanted to know more about declaring racism as a public health crisis. So, you know, at that point, I was more of a cheerleader more than anything else. You know, I was involved in some groups, Kids Happy Race, or, you know, the, um, which Akuye helped found, um, you know, Equity, um, Race and Community Engagement Coalition, kind of, you know, here and there. But when the Public Health Board declared racism a public health crisis, that was in response to community demand or a request, if you will. Um, and I could talk more about how that process came about. But as a result of that resolution, the health district actually allocated resources to equity. Before equity was more of, you know, if, if certain programs were, sorry, I use the word program, if certain teams within the health district were passionate about equity, they would incorporate it, but it was not um, universal within the health district. And we didn't have like a, a shared terminology, things like that, or shared expectation even that we would address equity. Um, but with the, the, the resolution, it has several commitments in it. And one of them has to do with actually having staff. And this is really important because other resolutions across the country don't have commitments. They don't allocate resources. And just telling a government agency, oh yes, you'll handle equity without putting a budget line item means that it'll be kind of an afterthought, right? Or it's kind of like another layer among other layers. So this resolution said that, you know, you'll hire a community liaison. And what our leadership ended up doing is saying, no, this needs to be a separate program we're going to hire a program manager first. So that was really important with that resolution. Another thing, another component of that resolution is that the health district will have, I think the um, certain training, and I believe the topics were um, cultural competency, anti-racism and health literacy, plus other topics. But those are the three topics, if I remember correctly, that were called out in the resolution. And, the, and then one of the other commitments was that we would co-create solutions to systemic inequities with our community partners. And the reason why I say this is pretty huge for us is because, you know, often we look at health topics like health, excuse me, like healthy eating, active living, smoking cessation, or food safety, but actually dealing with poverty, racism. You know, I don't think we've, you know, I might not be, being, I might be unfair about this, but I don't think we've necessarily handled its head on, right? We've maybe gone to some housing meetings, but really more like in our limited public health capacity. So to me, this co-creation of solutions with community partners is huge. And I, and I do believe that often in government, we think we know best, right? And so we're like, oh, well, we're going to do our research and we're going to find best practices. But instead, you know, our community often has the answers to our, to our, to the issues that we have. It's just in bringing them to the table, giving them equal voice and, you know, honestly compensating them and treating them like consultants and, you know, as equals, not just, oh, we're going to, you know, get community input and then we're done kind of thing, but that, that continued partnership. So anyway, um, so when this resolution passed, um, then my position was, was created. I applied for it and I was very lucky to get it. Um, and I started in this position full-time about last October or so. The resolution declaring racism a public health crisis, um, it, that, that passed in May 2021. So it's been about a, almost a year and a half now. And to my knowledge, we're still the only governmental entity in Kitsap that's really addressed this and has staffing for it. Now, this might change because... I, I'm not saying that the health district started anything. I think really it's more the advocacy of folks like Akuye and, and Kitsapi Race and all these other organizations that are pushing government. But I think we we may start to see city governments actually investing in hiring an equity, uh, either race equity or all equity consultants or or 
um, staff member to really push that issue forward in their organization. Um, so in this past year, um, there have been a couple things that I've been working on. So one is looking at our internal structure and our internal culture. Um, we don't talk about, you know, a year ago, we didn't talk about equity as much. Um, so it was doing, you know, is designing employee training, meeting with all our different programs, all of our different teams to talk about equity because, uh oh, is Jessica, you know, the politically correct police? Is she going to white shame me? So it's really the, the first year I had to really build those relationships. And luckily, because I've been at the health district so darn long, people knew, oh, you know, they, they were familiar with me. They, they knew that I wasn't just going to shut them down and then and, and just being present and as I talked with different teams, I realized, you know, they, they do have equity mindsets, but they just don't call it equity. But we have some teams who are really focused on poverty, but they might have actually had the conversation about how does racism affect poverty? How is that a driver for poverty? So, you know, anyway, so, so with this, so we have this internal bucket of work. So looking at training and, and right now our, our first training with the employees is going to deal with identity and power. We're calling it positionality training. And the idea is that our, our training has to deal with the individual, the organization, the community, and the society. So that's so we're building a training program based on that. We did do an internal equity assessment to figure out what we can do better. And, and I don't know if I talked to you about this, Maria, but honestly, one of the biggest takeaways from that assessment was our staff doesn't know how we react to community input related to our priorities. So that needs to change. You know, either it's it's a lack of awareness in our agency, or maybe we don't do it enough. So there, there's that piece, and then with with community partnerships, you know, really trying to look at how we engage with community and how we see them as partners differently. Um, so the fact, like one thing I, I also encourage, like me and Maria to do, is just to be at community events without an agenda. It's not a grant deliverable, and actually, Akuye right. really um, helped bring this to light for me. And I and I should have realized this years ago, but you know, when when Holly the vaccine equity collaborative, um, excuse me, the vaccine equity liaison. So her position was eliminated due to, you know, that, that, that phase of work was done. But I think what was missed was the community impact because she built such amazing relationships in the thick of the pandemic where people were really looking for someone to trust in government. And I remember, and Akuya, I, I think about this a lot, um, when we had her, her um, goodbye party, I had one person, a community leader, who yes. was angry about it, yes. and rightfully Very so. Angry. And, and you know, one of the things I've had to learn about in this position is not to be defensive and not to be like, well, our leadership didn't see enough work for a person. And just to be like, you know what? It is okay to be angry. I'm angry. I don't want her to leave. This was not my decision. I was not consulted about this. And and, and that's and, and I think what, what I'm what I'm hoping to build and 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 get some feet, you know, and 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 build my own muscle and getting community feedback without having to be like, well, our agency policy is this. So at that meeting, not only was I not chewed out, I should say, but um I had someone speak very passionate to me. And he's like, Jessica, this is not about you. I'm like, oh, I, I see that. And I said, you know, so acknowledging that hurt. And letting my agency know also, hey, it hurts when you're when your main contact and organization leaves. You can't just replace that. So there's that piece. But then even Akuye telling me, you know, Jessica, you know, with, and, and I'm paraphrasing because Akuye says things so much more eloquently than I do. You know, in government, you have these grant deliverables and you go to community and you ask community to help and community will do the labor for you, you know, doing outreach, looking for places, for example, to do vaccine clinics and other stuff. But then when your grant deliverables are done and the grant funding is over, you leave. So that really stuck with me. And um, 
one of the great things about how our equity program is funded is that it's not funded by grants. And so one of the big things, you know, for us to build relationships is to go to meetings that are not just grant driven, um, just to listen. So for example, Marie and I are going to be going to the, the, the community and police policing together, you know, the PACT meeting that, um, uh, Pastor Richmond Johnson and, and uh, Partner for Youth Achievement and others are having this, 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 um, this week. I don't know if the health district has ever participated in that. But in order for us to know what's important to the community, we actually have to be there in meetings. So that's, and, and I'm so sorry to be taking up so much time, but this is trying some of the ways I'm trying to change how we do things at the health district. The funny thing is, then I get asked, well, Jessica, can you send this to so-and-so? And it's like, you know, yes, but do you know how much we invest in going to meetings and building those relationships? But we're, we're seeing, we're quote returns. But another thing that we're doing is we're launching what we call the Health Equity Collaborative. So I mentioned that during the pandemic, we had the Vaccine Equity Collaborative. It was very limited though, because it was just looking at vaccine. With the Health Equity Collaborative, there is no deadline for this because health inequities exist and they will continue to exist until we really address those hard issues, right? So I'm really excited about the Health Equity Collaborative because the collaborative will decide what topic we talk about. And that's that piece I was talking about, about co-creating solutions. Um, it's not the health district saying, oh, we need to focus on something that's public healthy. No, we're gonna, um, in, in January, come together. You know, we'll, we'll look at data, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to stories, we'll listen to input from the collaborative members and then figure out what we want to address. And then, you know, I've also committed to Maria and my time to actually address and, and support the work that the collaborative will eventually think of. Um, but what's different about that collaborative also is that we're paying people who participate and are not being paid their, by their organizations. That is not something that we typically do in government. But um, some of you may know that the Public Health Board expanded last year. No, actually, it was earlier this year, excuse me, due to a state law that passed last year. And we now have non-elected members, which is huge because across the country, you saw politics getting involved in public health. Now we have, um, now we actually have five, I think, new members, and it's amazing. So we now have a member, so we have a member on, on our board from each of our neighboring tribes. We only had to have one per law, but our board decided that they wanted to have a spot for the Suquamish tribe and the Port Gamble-Sklallam tribe. I just found out today that our Port Gamble-Sklallam tribe position is filled, and the person's going to be Jolene Sullivan, who's the health services director with the Port Gamble-Sklallam tribe. From the Suquamish tribe, and, and she is, sorry, and Jolene is a tribal member of the Port Gamble-Sklallam tribe. With the Suquamish tribe, we're going to have the health services director there. His name is um, Stephen Kutz, and he's a member of the Cowlitz tribe. So he's originally from, you know, Southwest Washington. And then we have um, Drayton Jackson, and who's really and that's really exciting. He's on our board. We also have Dr. Um, Michael Watson. He's with uh, Virginia Mason Franciscan Health. And then we have um, Dr. Um, Tara Sirks. Oh my gosh, Kirk Sells, who's I believe a public health researcher. So we have this expanded board, and our board members who are not elected are also being compensated. So we followed off that model because, you know, sometimes it's kind of a wait and see, but that was precedent setting for us. And I think because we are compensating our board members who are non-elected, we have this, I was able to, to, to propose to our leadership, hey, if we're going to be doing this health equity collaborative, we need to pay our, you know, our, our folks who are not being paid by their organizations. There is national precedent for this. You're seeing that more national, internationally with governments paying their consultants, right? We pay our DEI consultants. We pay our strategic planning consultants. You know, Akuya is a huge um, community consultant and we need to start paying folks like that, like her, like, you know, um, all the other folks are giving us input. So anyway, so we have this collaborative. We had our first meeting earlier this month. 
And we're having our, our visioning meeting in January. And Okuya, I remember, you know, earlier this year, you talked about how as a community, we need to have this visioning process. And one piece of feedback I got from the collaborative meeting that we had earlier this month was, well, Jessica, we need to also include city and county officials because the only government officials at that meeting were public health folks. So in the future, you know, also bringing our other governmental folks. So there's a, there's a lot going on. Um, and, and I think another thing, and I, and I promise I'll, I'll stop, is um, is elevating the concerns of our community within the health district. So for example, and I really want to give Maria credit for this because of her passion on working with youth. I, I you know, I, I don't mentor youth. I have my two kiddos and that's kind of the, the, the extent of, of, of my impact on youth. But, um, you know, it was through conversations with her, you know, meeting you, Danielle, and, and hearing about other community meetings, you know, concerned about mental health, especially of our BIPOC youth, um, you know, elevating that to our leadership, letting our leadership know, hey, this is an, a concern. And what's exciting is um, when I mentioned this to our community health director, Yolanda Fong, she's like, well, you know, this other department, you know, our chronic disease prevention team, they may have funds to help with these kind of initiatives. So it's also networking within my own agency and Maria and my agency to see who can help with these with these issues and figuring out, okay, well, how can this also fit? Because the health district is also doing strategic planning um, starting early next year. We're also participating in KITSAP Community Resources um, Community Needs Assessment. Maria and I both have been note takers and um, contributors to their focus groups, for example. But then also I've been doing some key informant interviews for Virginia Mason Franciscan Health's um, community assessment. So we're hearing from community leaders, but then also going to community meetings about their needs. And we're trying to elevate that as well to our to our leadership. And that's, so there's a lot going on from the health district, I think. Akuya, you're up. Yes, oh my God, go Jessica, go, run girl, run. You and Maria, this is how we elevate. This is how we transform. This is how we begin to shift the paradigm for the opportunity to be heard across. We're going to level the playing field for leveling. When I say level, I mean our young people, our parents, our community, our school districts, our you know health districts, our government. How do we do this collective work, especially when you're dealing with historical institutionalized racism that we know is a crisis? across the line. I don't care. It's a not just in the health district. It's in our community. It's in our school. It's in our families. It's in our history. It's in the DNA of this country. So how do we begin to address that and move that where we can begin to reconcile? We know the history is there. For us to sit here and, and, and act as if that this has not been a problem and an issue in our nation for hundreds. And it is not just that it's in our nation, it are our institutions were built on it. We 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 have these systemic pieces that we have to deal with. 
That's why it was important when we started Kids at P-Rates that we said, we got to look at our schools. We got to look at our health districts. We got to look at our city government. We got to look at our faith-based organizations, which Danielle, you know that it exists within all of these institutions. We got to look at our businesses that say, and I said, you know, when you come in and, and you try to do this type of work, and especially when these organizations have in their mission statement that we're undoing racism or we got, we're going to be looking at equity, inclusion, diversity, multicultural, and they say that this is all within their mission and they check the box, but there's no accountability. There is no moving these these issues to a place if it's not in there. Where is their uh, district improvement plan? If it's not written in there, where is there? Where is it in their budget? It's not in there. It it doesn't exist. It's just they check the box and say they're doing this, but they're not. the 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 organization is not being held accountable for what they say is in their goals because they wrote them in their goals. They, 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 they've got it languished in their goals. But then how do you begin to hold them accountable to say they are? And so I was so, I was like, yes, Jessica, because if it's not in the budget, if they're not intentional, if they're not moving equity and inclusion and diversity forward in these institutionalized policy practice and procedures, then it, it really... You know, it doesn't exist, you know. It is that thing that's out there in La La Land. So when you file, how do we begin to, to look at that? The training, where is the training? Because you got to shift the mindset. You've got to begin to transform how people are going to step into this work of equity and inclusion. And you got to give them tools. You got to be able to say, look, you need training. What is cultural competency training? What is the GARE training? What are these trainings that are available? Where is the training from the People's Institute? Where is the training? for because actually if you look in our history we've got a lot of history that has the freedom schools and all of them they were doing this work back in the day but there was a shift back in the day where they stopped when they started killing off the leaders and started you know manipulating city governments and working in legislation and all of these things you know we there was a halt during that period when they were doing all the civil rights and trying you think of it all those leaders that they they really assassinated that was moving race equity and, and inclusion forward, you know, our presidents, our, our black leaders, all of those leaders that they were taking out, you know, look at that history, look at what was being done in legislature, what was being done, set in place. So we have to look at the systems that continue to hold these inequities in place so that we can't move forward. And then it was a point in time, you know, during um, this last couple of years that just really highlighted all the inequities, all the disparities, all of the, the racist, you know, 
uh, uh, practices and policies that was in place that really hindered us. And we said we needed to look at these things, um, you know, with the killing of George Floyd and the murders that was going on with the pandemic. The pandemic really set it off because we could see it was actual, we could see how disconnected and how how all of these disparities were were being, you know, manifest showing they were just. They were just in your face. How are you going to not address stuff that's in your face? And then all of the racial, you know, um, one of the things that we started when, I think it was even before pandemic, before George Floyd, was all of the um, things that was being manifested during the, the, uh, during the presidency of, of our wonderful president, <laughs> We won't say his name. We won't say his name, you know, and that's the thing. We won't say his name, but we know who, who, who that was that perpetuated a lot of racial tension in our nation and began to cultivate it, to begin to really nurture all of that unhealthy, you know, behavior and mindset and, 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 when when we look at the history and we understand that racism has always been a crisis in our nation and if we just looked at it and looked at the concerns of racial diverse communities and understand that it it hasn't it it has never been a healthy uh, history. But when we tuck it away and sweep it under the ground as if it doesn't exist, we do ourselves a harm. And then when we look at how education plays a role, when we look at how health plays a role, you know, health and education are interdisciplinaries. And if we're not looking at how all of these systems are connected, that continue to perpetuate all of these internalized structures that perpetuate these disparities, then I think we're not doing a, a good job at being able to undo the institutionalized pieces of, of racism and how we, we begin to, to break down those barriers and begin to level the playing field and begin to get services, you know, and begin to get opportunities and the financing. You know, um, racism has played a key role in poverty. It's played a key role in health disparities. It's played a key role in education. If you guys think about it, you know, back in the day, when they were building all these institutions, you know, um, we weren't even allowed to read or write. In the 60s, when they wanted, you know, when they were talking all about, let's integrate these schools and everything, uh, you know, look at the racial tension there was just from us to be able to go to school with one another. And that's not been that long. That's been in our lifetime. It hasn't been hundreds of years ago. Oh, Little Rock Nine and all of that unrest and all, that has not. Civil rights and all that, that's, 
not been long at all. We've not come that far. And there was a halt to all of that work on undoing all of those institutionalized pieces. And, and when, and I can say it, when, when those assassinations began to happen, there was a shift where everybody was pulling back from trying to do that work. But yet it didn't go away. It still needs to be done. So as we move forward and we talk about how do we how do we begin to look at models and and the work, the foundation of that work that was laid prior to us even now. If you go back in in the 60s, you'll see, boy, they had it going on. Those models, those sit-ins, and all those things that they were doing to change policy to change institutional practices. You know, there's no need for us to reinvent the wheel. We've just got to begin to, to pick up the work and, and start doing the work again. There was a definite fear that came uh, into our communities and our nations when they began to kill our leaders for standing for what was right, the murders of Medgar Evers and Martin Luther King and all of them. You know, you look back at that time, the those ones that even the Black Panthers they exterminated those young people, and they and they put them in jail. There was two options: you they were either exterminated or they were incarcerated but they were definitely gonna dismantle those disruptors that was calling for equity. So yeah, the, and, and when you have all kinds of hate mail and hate literature that's being flooded across our nation, um, and I can tell you um, back in 2018, when, when we started the Race Equity Network, it was because there was hate literature being flooded across Kitsap County. Our churches, wasikas being, people were being attacked, racially slurred, and all kinds of things happening in the community that community members went to our city council and said, what y'all going to do about this stuff? Y'all see it's all coming up. You mean the government? Y'all not going to do nothing? Y'all not going to say nothing? What's up? So they decided they were going to, to at least have a race equity advisory council to the city council members that would deal with all these disparities and all these racial incidents that was popping off. But then, you know, they get in there and they want to be political and tie their hands and say what they can and can't do and don't even want to take the training. I mean, by now, that was 2018. Here we are going into 2023. Our Pozbo still ain't got one. South Kitsap still ain't got one. We still don't got our commission on truth and reconciliation. We, it's, it's still being pushed back. The pushback on moving equity, race equity forward, it's still, that's live and well. 
And for us to understand what we really are up against, you have to transform minds. And one of the things with, you know, with the education system, banning books and all of these things, I said, what is that all about? You better know what that's all about. You have to have a greater understanding because my, my thinking is if we don't even want to be truthful about our history and teach true history and teach our young people in the schools, I said, that's dangerous ground we're walk walking on. But that's something that needs to be looked at very carefully because it starts in the educational system. If you're not even going to teach to it, if you're not even going to give our young people true information, you know, when you're talking about, oh, these books can't be read, I, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. A red flag should be going up for all of us in our communities and all of us in the nation. What is that? Yeah, you better find out what's the at the root of all of that. So we do have a lot of work to do. Did this, this uh, I mean, the work is plenteous. The laborers are few. And then how do we, that are doing the work, how do we come together and work in a collective, collaborative way? that can help us move these things forward in, in a, a healthy way. Many hands make light work. Many of us, you know, yes, my my area of, of concentration might be education. Mine might be health. Mine might be city government. Mine might be the, the faith community. Mine might be just community members. But what happens when we begin to cultivate unified work to address these issues across those barriers? Because we all have the same goal. But look at how we work in silos. What can we do to break down barriers and really build community between the community of those that are doing the work? You know, do we lay aside our own agendas? Just like Jessica was saying, we just want to go to live. How do we come alongside and support? How do we come alongside and just listen? How do we come in and hear what the community needs are and all of those things? But sometimes we got to set our own egos aside for the greater work because the work is bigger than we are. You know, it took back in the day when I think about all of those civil rights leaders and and it and and believe you me, the environment was more hostile to make that change back then. You know, you, you had people gunning people, hosing people. Come on now. The history's there. But yet we want to erase some of that history and to say, no, this is the only part we want to teach of that, that history. You know, we talk about our, our native, 
and uh, our indigenous communities that was here and understand, and I'll keep saying it, as long as I have breath in my body, I come from a stolen people brought to a stolen land where they exterminated the indigenous tribes that was here to be able to capitalize on their land and everything else. And that history, you know, it's like, oh, we don't want to talk about that. But when you don't address the atrocities that have happened, it will keep coming up. Because you never went back and never healed that land. You never healed all of that uh, trauma and all those things. You know, one of the things that I always look at, I do look at, I do look at what happened over in Germany, that entire nation had to deal with the atrocities that Hitler committed. And it wasn't until they had to deal with their own atrocities that healing began to, to, to move those communities forward in a way where they could, you'll never be able to erase what happened, but they have to be able to heal those family heal, move towards healing, move towards reconciling those things. But when you just step over all the atrocities you've committed and 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 say, oh, oh, this ain't this and that ain't that. That is a shipwreck. That's a, a that's a recipe for destruction. And so how do we begin to do the work of healing? Because the health district, and I say this to Jessica and to the health district, y'all are supposed to be in the healing business. I mean, that's what you say. And then I say to the education people, y'all supposed to be in education. What are y'all doing? Health and education for some and not for all? Injustice, justice for who? Justice for some or justice for whom? See, we got to get, we we have to understand that we have to begin to shift the mindsets of those that can't see these things. You know, we have to begin to say, how do we take the scales off of people's eyes so they can see clearly that these are things that we we definitely have to, to work towards. How do we unstop the ears so that they can hear the voices and hear um, the things that need to be heard? Because some people, you know, some, and I can say this because one of my young people said to me, she said, you know, what do you do with people that just want to fight? They don't, they're, they're not trying to heal. They're not trying to do, they just want to fight. I said, so how do you become peacemakers in the fight? How do you, how do we step into that role? That we can at least be able to, to speak words that can, um, prick hearts and minds and transform uh, the communities that we're serving. 
because we're all serving. We're all serving our communities in a way, you know, and I, you know, it, it, it's hard when you always got to walk through doo-doo. I don't know. You know, I'm just throwing it out there like that. You know, when you got to crawl through feces every day, that's, you know, those that are in plumbing and stuff like that, I don't know how they do it. But is it needed? Definitely. So we we do we 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 can look at that we can do some collective visioning that can help our communities to move forward in a way that can really meet the needs you know because i i always have said our county isn't so large that we can't address this issue and that we can do this work and we can do this work well. We're not a King County. We're not a Pierce County. We're a Kitsap County. And collectively, we should be able to move things forward in a healthier way that guess what? Could be a model, not just for our state, but for the nation. Uh, you know, a little Kitsap County has changed the way that they address inequities, the way that they deal with racism, the way that they deal with disparities, the way that they deal with all of these unhealthy things that continue to hinder us all. I don't care what color you are. Hate comes in all colors. Mm -hmm. White, black, yellow, green, whatever way. But if we can deal with some of those issues, the bitterness and those roots of bitterness, why are our communities so bitter? What's going on that we can't come together and talk about it? If you're mad, I'm I'm cool with you being mad, but can we talk about it? Can, can we reason together? And the multitude of counsel, there can be some safety. If we come in in a collective way and deal with it, there can be some safety in that. Yeah, I was just, and I see your hand, Jessica. I, I was like thinking so much, and Maria, I know you were there with me, of our meeting last week with these families that, you know, they came out, almost 50 families, you know, 50 people show up to a meeting Thanksgiving week. That's right. And and I thought there's so much hope in just showing up. And and in the showing up, you know, the meeting was advertised. I saw some for like 6.15, some for 6.30. I got there at 6 because my phone rang and someone said, hey, where are you? I said, well, I'm not there yet. They said, well, hurry up. We're here. <laughs> We're here. You can <laughs> Yeah, I hurry said, up, Danielle, you're late. Hurry yeah. up. Uh, it's like six o'clock. So I pulled up, you know, and I got there and the principal was opening the door. And I had emailed early in the day and I said, well, you know, I don't know who's going to show up because this thing went out over Instagram. It went out, you know, word of mouth. Word of mouth. And when people got there, you, you know, they, the setup was to share stories and then to work towards solutions. But 
you could see when the invitation was to work towards solutions, people just stayed quiet because they were like, no, we have more stories to share. And and let me tell you, we we had to cut it off at like 815, 830, yeah. because people were not done and not everybody got a chance to share there. But I think about those families ended and Maria, you can speak to this too. Like they were like, when is the next meeting? And we had, you know, one of the main leaders from the Latina community was, was speaking and saying like, Hey, like we have problem, you know, we've had problems with the African-American community and we, where are they? Like, we know they're suffering. Like she didn't say it like that, but basically like, we are not the only people of color here that are experiencing this. So um, that gave me a lot of hope, the ability to show up and the stories they shared, I think are compounded. Like what you say, the history, when you name the history, I'm like, oh crap, we're repeating all of this right now in live time. Like it's happened yesterday. It happened, probably happened today, probably happened tomorrow. Like we actually haven't like slowed it down. It doesn't feel like, but Maria, Jessica, like, feel free to jump in. That's kind of where I was at. I jump in I guess a couple of things especially you know after hearing you know Okuye talk you know one of the things I think government should be doing is you know addressing you know inequities head-on and um some of you might follow uh, the health district on, on social media but um two weeks ago um the health district did a Facebook post recognizing transgender awareness week now this is the first time the health district has ever done a post like that and you wouldn't believe, actually you would believe the amount of hate that we got. But I have to tell you though, before we declared racism a public health crisis and really got deep into this work, I don't know if we would have ever done a post like that. Um, but you know, it was a conversation between the equity program and our communications program. Our, our communications folks were all on board. They even bumped this, this idea for this post up to our administrator who was supportive of it. He goes, hey, just make sure that you include our mission statement that you know our job is to promote the health of all people in Kitsap County. And, and I was really proud of the agency because I, you know, as government, sometimes we have to be careful about how we speak. And sometimes it's hard to be the first, but to be honest, I didn't see any other governmental entity and you all can check, please check me on this, but I didn't see any other governmental entity make that comment, you know, make that statement that we support our LGBTQ plus and our transgender neighbors, loved ones, community members. Um, and so this was a small thing, but this is where, you know, um, you know, there, there are these huge changes that we need to make as a culture, right? And, and and government structures. But even if it's just the acknowledgement of the suffering of people and the fact that we are, we see them, we honor them and we're there with them is huge. Um, and, and, you know, and I give kudos to, 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 to you, Danielle and, and Akuya, because I know y'all have been having these community conversations. So having, giving people a space to share their truth and their experiences is huge. And when you can bring government officials there to hear it, because often, and, and I'm speaking broadly, I mean, I, I've been in government for almost 15 years, so I'm not an expert, but I've been in it long enough. You know, we tend to like the quantitative data, right? The numbers. And I think as a public health in general, there's been this big movement about, and I'm going to use my, my nerd term, but disaggregating data. So looking at the numbers, but saying, oh, well, let's see, can we break this down? What is our Asian community experiencing or Pacific Islander? And that gives some depth to it, but then also realizing that there are sub-communities within this community. And, you know, um, Maria and I were talking about, 
um, VOPIN, Voices of the Pacific Island Network, they had an event earlier this year, and they had some data that showed that not all Pacific Islanders have the same educational experiences and the educational outcomes. So on the one hand, you know, government, we love numbers. Well, we need to dig deeper into those numbers, right? Break things down and really figure out what our community's experiencing. And sometimes in public health, we're like, oh, if the community is too small, then the analysis might not be enough. Who cares? Just still bring that data up. And that's where you complement it with the stories, right? The qualitative data. And this is something where I think when you think of governments as white supremacists, right? You know, there's this need for productivity and you have to, for every meeting you go to, you have to show what specific outcomes you have. Well, that's also something I'm hoping to change slowly at the, at the agency too. But um but also with data and, and the, the importance of storytelling and catching these stories and elevating them. And one of the things that, um, and, you know, Kung and Marie can talk about this, when we had our first health equity collaborative meeting, I got questioned by a community member who was skeptical, right? Because their experience was when they've worked with government, they have gotten roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And having to be honest and be like, look, here's what I can do as a manager of a program of two people. But at that meeting, we had the health officer there, and he is one of our highest officials at the health district. He's like our Spock, um, if you're a Star Trek nerd, but um, which more Star Wars. But um, you know, our chief science officer was there. My supervisor, who was a director, was there. So I mean, one thing I'm also hoping with with these collaborative meetings, if they're meeting community meetings, also just throw that out there, where you think having the health district be present is important and you want somebody with a director or administrator in their title that's also something that um you know i can also, i can also help facilitate but something also danielle or maybe actually um kaylee to your point you know we talk about this work but how do we support each other so we support each other in terms of um you know bring cross-disciplinary but then also really elevating the fact that we need that self-care and that connection and the fact that this is such heavy work um, you know, Marie and I have I mentioned, we, we, we've helped with some of these uh, focus groups for the kids at community resources. The stories are, are just heartbreaking. Um, and whether it's our youth and how they experience bullying, our elders who are experiencing lack of care, you know, lack of resources, and they just need some additional help. And you don't have that necessarily multi-generational household like you did before. So they don't have the supports that they had in the past. There's so much going on, but I think also, all of us doing this kind of work, taking care of each other as well. And then also letting people know it's, it's okay to not be okay. Um, so anyway, so I just wanted to throw that out there too. So I've been pondering Akuya's question towards the end and she said, how do we do this work? How do we, um, collaborate and um, bring about solutions. And something that uh, Jessica mentioned fairly early on when she spoke, she said the importance of letting go of ego, right? Leaving our ego at the door and uh, working collaborative with one each other, one another as we do this work. And then the second thing is listening. And that's the one thing I've really learned as um, a community engagement specialist uh, working with Jessica is that when I bring concerns to her or other community members bring concerns to her, she listens and then she acts. She does, whether it's something that it's a long-term thing that will take a while to address or something that we can address quickly. Uh, she keeps these wonderful worksheets and she keeps track of where she's at on different projects. 
And so I think being able to be transparent, because then she shares that information, she shared some of that information at the health equity uh, collaborative meeting that we had. Um, I think that's how we build trust with our community members that when they come uh, to our organization, that we will not just listen, but we will act. Now, it might not be immediate, but we will be taking action. Um, and so uh, that's something that I've learned just in my one month at the public health district with Jessica. I've got a work plan I can show you. Last year, she asked me, where's your work plan? I've got it. <laughs> it took me a year, but I've got it. <laughs> and I'm happy to show it to you. <laughs> Thank you, Jessica. Thank you for that. One of the things that, you know, I was talking with one of my um, equity sisters, Carrie Augusta, and as we were reading through the newspaper and stuff, you know, she said, you know, we need to be looking at patterns of oppression. Are we doing that in a collective way? Just looking at the patterns. Those patterns keep manifesting. It doesn't matter if it's manifesting with the African-American community, the Hispanic community, the Pacific Islander community, whatever community is. Are we looking? Are we looking at those patterns of oppression? That's key for us to move forward as we do the work. Because in order for us to address uh, and undo some of these things, we got to identify them. We've got to take time to sit down and identify these patterns that keep, you know, go, you know, they, just like when we were dealing with, you know, with uh, the racism on Bainbridge Island, you know, uh, it manifests itself back in the 90s and then again in the two, early 2000s. But I said, yeah, look at the patterns. They go underground for a little while and then they come back out. But look at the patterns of how they begin to to do that work of, of um, you know, racism. Look at the pattern of it. Look at how it shows up. Look at how it, it manifests itself in our institutions, in our workplaces, you know, in those areas that we are in on a daily basis. Don't matter in the schools. Look, they've been dealing with racism in the schools forever. Every since Little Rock Nine, they've been dealing with racism in the schools. And that was because why? Because racism was alive and well, and racism is still alive and well. So how do we begin to move these things and begin to address these things in a way that's going to shift the policy and procedures that should not be allowed in the institutionals? Shouldn't be allowed in the schools. Shouldn't be allowed in our city governments if you're serving all of us. If you're serving every one of those students, why are we dealing with what's happening at North Kitsap School District? And and there are some questions I think that we need to be asking to administration and to those superintendents and to those staff members because they're the ones that hold those practices in place, whether they're just or unjust. 
Who are the gatekeepers? Yeah, you got to see who's gatekeeping and who's gatekeeping what. And and really doing the that type of visioning to be able to address these disparities or, or address the racism or address all of these inequities. Because if you got a principle that's gatekeeping it, why do you think it keeps coming up? If you've got teachers that that is what their mindset is, that's what they were raised in, and that's their belief, why do you think it keeps showing up? Mm -hmm. Because it's us who hold these things in, in place. Human beings hold these practices in place. None of us get away. All of us are accountable. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not just this one, that one, that one. No, it's us. It's all of us who hold these practices and these policies in place. It's whether you will or whether you won't. So th those are the things I think when we can get down to those foundational principles on how to address and really are we asking the right questions? Because they'll have us running off on a, a wild goose chase on something that that <laughs> I'm just saying that don't even that that is totally gonna miss the mark. You know, because if we're if we just keep pruning this thing, pruning it, pruning it, and never getting down to the root of it, we ain't plucking up nothing. We, 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 all we doing is making it flourish and thrive. Because why do we prune? We prune things so it can come back healthier and stronger. I'm just, I'm just using these parables so we can see what we doing. Are we just pruning this thing? Or are we getting to the root of it mm -hmm. so we can pluck it up? Because if we're not, I think we're missing. We need to go back and revision and revisit and re-question and ask those, what's the, because you, you all know, what's the root cause? Mm -hmm. What's the root cause to the disparities that's happening, Jessica, in your departments or at the health district? What's the root cause when you're up in these schools and these things keep on um, coming up and manifesting? What's the root cause? Mm -hmm. Go yeah. back, do that questioning. Just ponder, just look at it. But let's let's get our chart out. Let's see what's happening. And then, then we can have a real good conversation about next steps and how we can move forward and what we are gonna do. Kaylee, I saw your hand raised. Um, and, and I just wanted to say like briefly after that meeting, I had a post up on Instagram, uh, highlighting the article and I had over 400 likes, but 300 of them were from local students. And I had 
over a hundred private messages to me and I screenshot them and, and it wasn't just Latino students. It was black students. It was white students. It was, you know, LGBTQ community. Like their base, I, what I understood from that is like, come on, get to work. Like, and I've, I've sent the screenshots, you know, to Maria and a few to Kaylee and some to Akuya, you know, um, because they're important. The messages they give were important. Um, but yeah, Kaylee, jump in. Yeah, I just, I mean, I love the questions that are being asked. And Akuya, some of your metaphors are like so amazingly helpful. Um, the pruning, uh, like I, yes, like I, I think that that is part of it is not getting to the root. And I think one of the things that Danielle and I've been trying to work on in our groups is also what you mentioned, Maria, is like, we have to be able to listen to each other. And I think like from a mental health standpoint and the impact of racism, like there is so much shame. So people cannot listen. I mean, especially speaking from a white person, my own racism, having to work through that. And, and then when I like me as a white person in these conversations, right. So many people cannot hear like we're never getting down to that. And like, that is part of what I think we're trying to address in those small group settings is like how to teach people to dig down deep and actually like what is happening in your body in these conversations. And I think like, I feel like this like top, like both and like the accountability you're talking about Akuye, like has to be because some people will never ever be able to get to what is deep down and actually deal with it. And if there isn't accountability, I don't, we're not, we're not going to cut any of that rot out, but I think like, yeah, like trying to continue to figure out how to get down to that root and deal with people's shame and the fear that like racism has taught you so that you can actually listen so that we can actually collaborate um, and I mean, I obviously am speaking to my white uh, community members that it's like, that is our work as white people that we have to work down to like what prevents us from listening and hearing and changing and holding other white people accountable. Um, so that's where that was taking me. So Kuya, you asked about, you know, the root cause of inequities and I don't necessarily have the answer, but I wanted to share. Um, I, I've seen a growing conversation um, kind of in public health circles about power as a social determinant of health. So when public health people use the term social determinants of health, they're looking at what social factors affect health. Um, there are different models out there, but most public health experts agree that more affects health besides what you eat and how much you exercise. It's the social and cultural factors. It's it's, it's um, the economy. It's your built environment, like, you know, access to sidewalks, parks, and things like that. Racism, discrimination, so many things impact health. And what I, I appreciate about power as a factor in health is because that's where you see governments needing to stop holding on to power so much, right? And so there are some 
um, agencies that are starting to dismantle that a bit. So I, I want to elevate, for example, um, our, our colleagues and so our public health colleagues in Tacoma Pierce County. So they have a budgeting process where they allow the community to help them set budget priorities. We're not there yet as a health district. I hope someday to actually advocate for that as well. But it's looking at how do we share power with our community and how do we also foster community building as well. So like in, and, and you know, okay, you'll, you'll probably know this better than I do, but just as an, as, as an observer, I've noticed like an increase in the number of nonprofits and people wanting to do really amazing work, um, you know, um, helping other people, but there's that lack of capacity. Oh, you know, people might start a nonprofit, but they might not have all the training that they need. Um, so as, as a community looking at power and how do we shift that and doing a power analysis. And I, I think you've talked to me about this, you know, really looking at who holds power in Kitsap County and how do we work together to, to, to share that power. Um, so so there, there, there's that piece. But then also, um, you know, Kuya talked about training, right? And so for me, a lot of my thinking has changed, not just because I've been going to different like online classes and in-person classes about racism, but also when you read books and listen to people and their experiences, whether they're a person of color, whether there's someone with a disability is huge. So for example, I read the book, um, Inclusion on Purpose. It's by Rashika Toshian. It's an amazing book um, about DEI in the workplace. Um, and she talks a lot about you know culture ad, right? And how when you hire someone, you need to think of them as a culture ad, not as a culture fit. So Maria, for example, when hiring for your position, I did that on purpose because a lot of our um, uh, hiring you know, matrices and whatnot say, oh, is this person a culture fit? So I cross that out. And for my for this position on my team, I want there to be a culture ad. I don't need someone who thinks like me. I need someone who has a different life experience and who can help bring a different perspective to this work. But then also it's it's knowing how people have been discriminated against and knowing, you know, people talk about microaggressions, but there's a movement to stop calling them microaggressions because they're really not so micro. But like, for example, um, with the public health board recruitment process, you know, I mentioned that um, earlier this year we recruited for non-electeds. I was given the opportunity to look at some of the recruitment materials. And, and I can say this publicly, I'm not um, meaning to shame anyone, but when I looked at them, it said that, you know, for the public health, you know, board member, you need to be articulate. And I'm like, hold the phone. So I was invited to, to give input and the committee that looked at this, they were all white passing. I can't necessarily say what their race was, but they were all white passing. And I, and I, and I said to them, you know, when you talk to a person of color, and you tell them they're articulate. It's like you're expecting them not to be articulate. Why do we do that? Do you do that to your white friends? Do you say, oh, you're so articulate? No. So why, you know, so why do why do we even say that? So I was like, you know what? No, don't put that they have to be articulate. That should be a given. Um, and it's just things like that where there were um there might have been a, like one or more other triggering words, right? But unless you've actually gone to the classes, you've worked on your own self-education, your own analysis as well. Um, to see how you might be perpetuating harm, then you can really work better with other people, if that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, to me, how do we get our, our government officials to listen more about the experiences of others? Uh, you know, um, I was looking at a, a, a data thing that one of my colleagues asked me to look at, and it was about our rates of disability in the community. And the rates are increasing. And someone's like, oh, that's a worsening trend. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Disability is not a good or bad thing. It is part of someone's identity. You can't say that increasing disability is a bad thing. It's just the way things are. And our, 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 our community members who are disabled will likely tell you that's not a bad thing. So it's also kind of, 
if we learn more about other people's experiences, going to meetings, meeting people outside of our circles, reading more, educating ourselves, that we can really have that greater empathy. And then we can also do that more of that power analysis, I think, and really putting our egos aside, not prioritizing our own comfort, uh, you know, risking, you know, other people just continuing to be in their discomfort um, and really just learning about the issues and then asking our community to be part of the solution. Um, and, and I think power is really key. And sometimes it's, oh, well, it's government officials. We have to have all the answers. Or as government officials, you know, we have to be, um, you know, separate. We, we can't be, you know, criticized because, you know, we, we have to be right all the time. It's baloney. And so we also have to acknowledge when we're wrong, how we can do better, and just also sit with the discomfort and just know people have a right to be angry and just sit with it. And, you know, we don't have to necessarily get defensive, right? And just say, you know what? Thank you for that feedback. I really need to think about this because this is a new perspective. Um, and I, um, so I'll just need to sit with that, but can I come back to you like in a week's time so I can process this so we can have the conversation? Um, because we'd never want to quote tone police anybody either, right? So anyway, I just wanted to, so Kui, I don't know if power is the root cause, but I, it's something that I'm really you know thinking about. I'm so glad, I'm so glad that you're talking now about the root cause is power. It's always been power. It's always been about capitalism. It always has been about who controls what. It has always, that is a major part and root cause of oppression, period. Yes. And we look through our history. If we look through it, we see that, that, you know, I'm glad you talked about white passing because white passing white passing was a form of either you assimilate it was about assimilation or extermination it was about survival if you could pass the white you could be in that place where you wouldn't be oppressed you wouldn't you know these opportunities you would be able to have these opportunities you would be acceptable with the power base of control so that you won't be the one that that is on the other side of that oppressive wheel so when we talk about the power analysis and the root cause and all of these things if we're not dealing with that power control all of those issues we're not even we're not even we're not even dealing with really the root cause of all of this. Because if you're dealing with the root cause of racism, it's always been about power and oppression and capitalism. If you deal with colonialism, you're going to have to deal with the power base analysis that got us to where we are here in this nation. And if you're willing to turn a blind eye to that history, that's why I said it is important that we know how this nation and what this nation was built on. To understand how do we get here? How did we get in this mess that we're in now? Why are we still dealing with, we're still dealing with these things, but that, that was foundation. If you look at, I don't know if any of you guys have dealt and, and looked at eugenics, especially in the health field, you'll see the base of all of that. You'll see root causes of all of the stuff that the health district is dealing with. 
Know your own history, whether it's the history in education, whether the history with the faith base, because the churches played a huge role in all of that. How the government played a huge role in all of that. How the educational systems and the health system. Let me tell you something. We were being experimented on uh, when they were laying down the health districts in this nation through the colleges, through the school system. Mm -hmm. Oh no, it's paused. Kuye. Oh, you're back. You cut out for a minute. Yeah, that's it. And it's very vital, very vital to know our history, research our history, the roots of how we got here in our education system, in our health systems, in our governmental systems, in our faith-based systems, and how that began to to transform throughout all of our communities. And I would like to address also, uh, when you're, we're talking about power, it's how that power uh, causes us to internalize certain things. I talked about internalized racism. Uh, Michelle Obama on her book, Becoming, she talks about her her grandpa and her, her dad being somewhat, um, crunchy to be around with because they had all these um this so much anger at the fact that they had the ability to be a lot more than what they were doing but they weren't given the opportunities and what that made created in them um and for me i talked about having internalized racism and so when i started on this road of understanding um equity and uh, doing anti-racism work and things like that, I realized how much internalized racism I had in myself and learning to heal that internalized racism, learning to reframe those things that I had accepted uh, from when I was a child growing up here uh, in the United States um, and seeing this, the stories from students uh, at this last hearing, just the, the stories from the students this last week um, and since I've been working with youth uh, and realizing some of that power we take back when we empower our youth to not internalize that racism that they experience. And I saw that very clearly as I was looking at Facebook posts on the Jam and Gents event this week and how the kids were just, you could see that they were so confident and, and loving each other and supporting each other at that event. Um, and so, you know, there's there's two parts of power, right? The, um, those that hold the power and those who have the power taken from them. And how do we empower those who have had the power taken from them, get that power back for themselves? How do we help them heal to take that power back? Wow, Kuya, I was just like thinking about like, and Maria, thank you for saying that. I didn't really have that put into words for myself. So it was good to hear you say it. I was thinking about the root cause in this power and, and the idea, you know, what Kaylee is talking about, you know, coming from a more psychological lens. I, I had one initial thought that there was a, there was a, a Jesuit priest who was a liberation psychologist in El Salvador. And in 19, I think it was 1984, 1986, he was assassinated by CIA operatives in El Salvador because his push 
among, for human rights, he almost did all his work in Spanish because he didn't want it to be in English. He wanted to be accessible. And one of the things he said is like, <clears throat> why would you come to therapy if I'm just going to help you as a psychologist maintain the status quo of the system that is actually causing your trauma? So when you come to therapy, I'm going to, part of your healing is to be a disruptor of the system. Well, you can guess how that goes. He was ended up murdered, right? And I, I often think of that part of who I am. I didn't have words for it before I started reading it, but part of the work Kaylee and I do, like our job with folks of color is not to not to show up to these meetings at the school and um, bring a space of listening so that therefore they can go another five rounds in the ring and get beat up again. I am not there for that. Like that is my power as this is where it feels like we all have our individual ways of coming to the work and addressing like, what power do I have in my situation? I really see like my, my power is to listen. So therefore you can listen. So therefore you can empower your own students, your own children to speak up in the community. You can say enough, which is, I'm kind of going off here because I got inspired by what you all were saying, but I'm, I was very inspired by these parents telling their stories because, and, and I'm telling you, you know how it is today? People be on their phones like all the time, like scrolling, like social media. We had kids in there. There was not one cell phone out. There was not, people were not checking social media. And we had, we had a lot of like young kids in there. They weren't, they weren't not paying attention. They were in it. They were listening. And that showed me that, that to see these parents of theirs sharing stories empowered them to stay present. And, and eventually towards the end of the meeting, then we had students speaking using their voices. And we had the parents sitting next to them. Actually, my friend Charter was sitting next to my daughter saying, I know you have something to say, say it. And, and she wasn't the only one empowering a youth to say something. It was after one of the other moms had shared in the back, then the two students sitting next to her shared as well. So you could see how the power of sharing the story begins that shift of what Maria is talking about. And, and you know, um, and also it's threatening, right? To have to have that shift, right? It becomes threatening um, to the to the quote unquote powers that be because maybe they're not so powerful anymore. And so I know I went off, but Jessica, I see your hand raised. So feel free to jump in. You know, what you're saying is really important. And, and it brings up a question. So I have a question for you all. Um, so like I've been in spaces where um, there are people who haven't told their story before or telling their story, but then you have people who've been fighting this fight for decades and are tired of hearing the stories because they want action. So I guess, how do we reconcile that? Um, like I went to like a kids up a race coalition meeting, for example, this was like several months ago where, you know, someone was, was joining who hadn't been there for a while. And it's like, this is the same conversation I've had. So it's like, okay, so how do we bring people together? You have some people who've been fighting this fight for decades and they want to see action now, but then you have others who are finding their voice who need to speak up because their voices haven't been heard. But then like, there's this disconnect of where we need to be and how can we do both? And how do we also bring them together in conversation? So it's not necessarily competing voices because there are different stages of their journey. So I guess that's a question I wanted to 
sorry, Daniel, I didn't ask like I asked questions, but I would love some um, some insight onto this into this. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because we all are growing at different points. We all have stepped into this this work, some not knowing, some have been doing it for years, like you said, some some just you need to be able to share and these things. But when you begin to empower the community and empower these different areas and departments to step into it. You give them a place to move towards action. You know, those ones that ain't there quite yet, that's cool. But those that are, they have initiatives that they're driving forward, like the, the Youth Direct Equity Initiative, like the initiative to declare um, racism a public health the threat those ones that really are they they're like we want action you have to be able to shift them towards moving that action forward otherwise you'll lose those ones as well because they're they're like i'm tired i've been around this mulberry bush over and over and over again and i you know i don't want you have to be able to use wisdom to, to recognize those that are that that's in your that I would say in your village because it is it's about villaging all these voices in your village that have the different giftings and I'll say it like that the different giftings the different talents the different passion to be able to to recognize where they are, know those who labor amongst them, mm -hmm. and be able to say, this team is working on an initiative to move forward, and let them go to that initiative. These ones are here, and they would like more training. Let them go to the training. These ones are here. They want to have communication and conversations. Let them go to the conversation. But you have to really you know, do that asset mapping chart. I keep on saying the asset mapping chart is a tool for us to move forward race equity. If we would use it, if we would begin to map it out, then the vision is clear and people can run with it. See, when the vision's not clear, then people are wondering, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this, that, that, that? But when you begin to have that asset mapping chart and that ally building chart and that goals chart laid out, then yes, people can step in at whatever level they're at to be able to, to feel empowered enough to move the work forward. But that's a collective visioning piece too. Mm -hmm. That needs to happen. So those are my thoughts. And those are some of the things that I think that we can do and we can do well. Kuye, and I mean, we. this is literally a live conversation for me or a question I've been asking myself because let's be honest, different communities are in different places collectively in how to act and have different experiential, experiential levels. And also, I just want to say that Cesar Chavez and Dr. Martin Luther King, they they were friends. They were compatriots. They were in arms together. Um, and Cesar Chavez worked with the Chinese uh, liberation movement in California. So 
they, these people modeled for us. So one of the things I told these families when they were talking to me, I was like, you know what, in Kitsap County, let's be honest, we haven't made much of a stir. The Latino community stayed quiet. We've been scared. I said, in North Kitsap particular, I said, are we going to meet with the African-American brothers and sisters in our community? And they said, yes, we want to do it. So I'm like, let's do it. Like, who knows how to act? Who has experience advocating? And so you have, I think we have to form alliances that aren't based just out of whiteness because, because the white model for me is like, well, you need to find like a white sponsor or a white patron to like kind of move this forward. Cause you won't be taking it seriously. That's, that's kind of a cultural stereotype I've come in with from a, from a Latin American or Mexican standpoint. I don't know, Maria, maybe you've had something different, but that was my family's experience experience. So I, I was encouraging families when we were gathered at a church meeting, I was like, Hey, I know people that know how to get SH done, like, and we should talk to them because we haven't done this in this group of us haven't done this together before. So we need to have those conversations. And so Akuya was like, let's have a town hall. And I brought it up like three times and everybody's like, when is it? And how many people can come? So I, I really do think that. And then, you know, you have Kitsap Race Coalition, you have these other things. So we don't have to reinvent everything. We just have to get together so we can hear the stories. People need to hear the stories and then see that that this community is invested in taking action. That's I'm being passionate, but that's how I feel. <laughs> You know, that's right on, right on. We talk about breaking down barriers, but we got to have a strategy. Where's the strategies for us doing that? You know, we talk about how do we reach? How do we break down barriers? How do we welcome? How do we even begin to make those, start building those uh, relationships and connect in a way that, that we can hear from one another, you know? We we have to be, you know, it ain't going to just poof up out the air, y'all. We got to be intentional about what that looks like and then move towards how do we begin to build, build not just bridge, but build those connections. Because that's going to be important moving forward, especially if you're talking about doing this collective town hall. Those leaders have to have letters typed up, being intentional about what those letters are going to say, and then intentional about those that have a relationship already established with them, where they already have trust, are those ones that are reaching them to make sure that those that they, they're being welcomed and inviting and inviting them in, in such a way that, you know, because it's easy for me to say, to Danielle, Danielle, I need you to come because we already we already got this relationship flowing. I can easily say to Jessica, Jessica, we need to make sure X, Y, and Z. Maria, we need to make sure X, Y, and Z. Kaylee, we need to make sure X, Y, and Z. And then say to Leonard, Leonard, who here at the table got a relationship with Leonard? Leonard, we need you to come over here. Pastor Richmond, Pastor. 
uh, Johnson, Coleman, all of y'all, we need y'all over here. That's that collaborative, collective coalition building. That that needs to happen. And, and when we can do that, and when we can do that well, then we get to hear the voices of our community. So, okay, you know, to add to that, um, you know, I, I'm curious if potentially bringing community power building workshops and having them like in Spanish and in English um, to help communities who, who have the stories, they just need the tools. And I'm curious if we can get different communities to have those tools and then to have those conversations and build coalition. The only reason why I mentioned training is so we're all kind of speaking with the same foundational set of tools, if that makes sense. So that way we kind of let more level the, the playing field. And if that's something um, that community is interested in um, and, and, and if folks have ideas of what kind of skills building, I mean, that could be something that, um, you know, I could, you know, Maria and I can bring back to the health district and to some of our community partners as well. Um, something, you know, I mentioned earlier, but like, you know, there, there's a lot of nonprofits, for example, in our community who could use some skills building because they have these huge visions, but they might not have had a class on strategic planning or been mentored through a strategic planning process. Um, so that's just something I want, I want to throw out there because I think, I think community power building is so important because government doesn't have all the answers. Community does, right? So we can work together. And if we can help empower our communities to, 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 to speak up, feel comfortable building those bridges, but having the language also to work with communities. So like, you know, what Carrie was talking about, you know, writing letters, even if they knew kind of how government structures work and, oh, wait, you're saying, you know, instead of going to all these different city council meetings, I can go to the public health board where all the cities, so for example, um, you know, our public health board has been talking a lot about um, access to health care and public health board. That's the governing body of the health district. So like it has all of our cities represented in the county. Um, there's some movements that have been going to all these different city councils. But, you know, you can just go to one meeting where you have like, representatives from the cities and the city and then the county all in one place. But you wouldn't know that unless someone told you that. Right. Or unless you're really familiar with how government works. So, you know, if there's ever a desire for that capacity building. Um, and if folks are interested in this kind of training opportunity, that can be something that maybe the health district, we can also, you know, maybe even nudge our county partners say, hey, you want to build some goodwill? Why don't you help us fund a training um, for the community and have government sit with them, right? So it's not, you know, so we can build those relationships. So just something I just want to throw out there. If, if folks say that this is something, um, there there are some funding opportunities for community power building initiatives. So this is something that... Um, just, just to keep in mind, but if it's someone, something that folks are interested in, I think also asking whether it's the health district, city, county government, you say you like equity, you you mention it, you know, the, the county mentioned a year ago, maybe longer, that they wanted to have a some sort of equity committee. This is a first step that, that folks can do. There's a human rights conference going on on, on December 10th. You know, sh shouldn't there be some training involved and can, can the county help pay for that? So that, that might be something else that we can also demand of government too, right? And, and I'm part of government, but any ideas you have for, for, for community um, capacity building? We should definitely be supporting that. Thanks, Jessica. I, I just will wrap up. I have another meeting at two, but as we wrap up, I'm just curious, like final, like not final thoughts, but maybe um, what's lingering for you at the end of our time together. Yeah, I've been very inspired. 
Well, I just wanted to say, I've, I feel like the more that we can do this type of visioning and this type of collective, collaborative, you know, lifting up of voices and being able to address the issues that, that we see, because you, you might see something I don't see. And I might see something that you don't see or experiencing something within my community that none of you all might see. But to bring it to the forefront, like Danielle did with all of the families and, and Maria and Jessica with the health district and Kaylee working alongside with Danielle. See, now we're connecting. Now we're, 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 we're saying, what can we do together? to address these issues. And I think the more we can do that, cultivate these type of models and practices and building and cultivating this type of, of conversation, I I think we're well on the way to, to addressing these disparities and, and, and building community in such a way to make an impact and make transformational change. You know, I don't just want to come in just to be doing something. I want to see change and the families want to see change and our communities want to see change. I don't just want to be just dotting the I and crossing the T say I'm doing something. You know, I could be doing something better with my time than that. But the more And transformation in our communities. I think we're we're on the we on the yellow brick road, y'all. When we can revelation will come, how we gonna get how we gonna get home? <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel some hope and excitement. I think just sitting in all of your presence and like hearing what it is that you're doing and working on, I feel hope and excitement and like i just want to keep learning more and following where you guys are going because it feels like a good direction we're so lucky in our community that we have such amazing leaders you know like like, like you all i mean really and who are elevating the voices of people who've been voiceless or have been made to feel voiceless, I should say. And, and, and I think one thing I would love to see moving forward is, you know, continue these community conversations, but then also please don't hesitate to reach out. I can only speak to us, you know, health district equity program, but please reach out if there's ideas you have. Um, if there, um, if there's any way that we can support, I, I can't always guarantee that we can, but we can definitely at least raise the issues internally. And especially now, I'm excited because the health district is working on our strategic planning process. So what do we want our health district to look like? I think the county has been working on their planning processes and I've not been following through so well, but if we can keep each other connected on, on initiatives that we're working on, how can we work together, not duplicate efforts unnecessarily, but sometimes we have to, right? But just keep each other in mind and just note also that this is not a competition either. And I'm not saying that for this group in particular, but sometimes I do see competing events or competing initiatives, but we're all in this together and we all have our different strengths. And if we can come together, share what we're doing um, and have, you know, and include us by that collective visioning, but also just not lose hope. And, you know, we may have had a negative experience with one entity. Let's keep trying. Are there other partners who may have influence based on their rank, their involvement in government? 
and, and, and it's really easy to be jaded in this work and to get burned out, but also seeking community and supporting each other, I think is really important. So I, I really look forward to, to future conversations and, and Danielle and Kaylee, you know, you know, with, with your work with youth and, and with mental health, even though the health district doesn't have a mental health program necessarily, but we can make connections. And if there are issues we can elevate, if there's data that we can help bring, if there's any way that we can bring our weight as a government aid entity, please let us know. And Akuya, you too, you know, but also please do continue to invite us to things too. So we can hear, we can bring our leaders with us because sometimes it takes a leader, um, a big wig to hear and experience to get them motivated and they can act much faster than like I can. So also let us know of those opportunities too, um, just so we can get different peoples of different rank, if you will, with different sets of power at the table to listen to the stories. And I just want to speak to the power of conversation because it was in a conversation uh, through Erase and other organizations that were asking, why are we not declaring racism a public health crisis? That it was declared, right? And that's, um, that's what keeps me hopeful that these conversations are happening and things are moving forward. And someone earlier said, you know, there's a huge change that needs to happen. Uh, but they also talked about small changes that they were doing. And I, uh, and huge change, that's how it comes about. It comes by those little small steps and having these conversations and building these relationships uh, and partnering uh, is how we will move forward. Thank you.